Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does faith have to give up? And the answer is everything. Some years ago, a missionary who ended up giving his life for the gospel in South America said this, we give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. The gospel calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow Christ. That is the character of faith in the New Testament, and that is the character of faith in the Old Testament as well. And in our text, Abraham, the father of believers, is taught by God that we cannot withhold anything from him. To hold on to God in true faith is to be ready to give up everything and everyone. And so we turn to the first verse of our chapter. After these things, God tested Abraham. After these things. What has just happened is that Ishmael has been excommunicated from the visible church. And Abraham has learned again, as he has learned so often over the last years. It's not my way, but it's God's way. Abraham's attempt to make God's promises come true through his own efforts didn't work out. It just brought grief. So Ishmael is cut off, and only Isaac remains the child of promise. But Abraham still has more to learn. The father of believers must learn what every believer must learn, that we put our faith in God and not in anything or anyone else. The question right now in Abraham's life is this, does Abraham pin all of his hopes on his son Isaac? Or does Abraham place all his trust in God? And so God tested Abraham. Now, we know the outcome. And so it's easier for us to read this narrative. Abraham didn't know what was going to happen. And so for the next three days, Abraham experiences intensely the suffering of Job. As God leads him on a path of pain and takes everything from him, God teaches him the character of faith that is to trust and to obey. Even when I don't understand what God is doing. If you look at verse 2 there, he says, take your son. And I want to stop there. Children, do you see anything between the word take and the word your? There's just a little blank space there, but I want to put something in there. Because the Hebrew has a tiny little particle that comes after that verb take. And it is the, a little bit of language which we would pronounce in English as na. So to Hebrewify it, he says, take na, your son. Now what is this little bit of language used for, this na sound? It's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it means please often. It means a very intense Please, it means I beseech you when human beings speak to human beings and they add that little na 
particle, they're really, really asking. It's important that this happens. Only four times in the Old Testament does God use this little particle. And three of those times, he uses it in Genesis with Abraham. And so there is an urgency here. Take your son. This must happen. This is urgent. This is important. God used the same way of speaking back there in Genesis chapter 13 when Lot separated from Abraham. And then God said to Abraham in that context, lift up nah, your eyes. You've got to lift up your eyes, Abraham. Don't be depressed that Lot's going away from you. But lift up your eyes and hear the promise that I'm going to give you a land and a people. And then in Genesis chapter 15, the same thing happens. God says, I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham says, Lord, I'm depressed because I have no heirs. I have no son. My servant will be my heir. And then God says to him, look nah toward heaven and number the stars. You've got to look, Abraham, because so shall your offspring be. And now, here for the third time, in Genesis 22, God uses that same little particle to intensify what he's saying. And he says, take nah your son. You have to do this. This has to happen. But what follows this time does not look like a wonderful promise. But it is an order to take your son. And I'm going to go in the Hebrew order here of the words. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go. You see that word go there in verse 2? It's the same command from Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham was still back there with his relatives in the northeast. He was told by God to go and to leave his family and his kindred and his land and to go, literally go away by yourself to the land that I will show you. And now God's telling him the same thing. Go away by yourself. Leave everything behind. Go to one of the mountains that I shall tell you and offer your son there as a burnt offering. So Abraham doesn't even know where he's going. Just like back in Genesis chapter 12, God will show him when he needs to know. And so this is a call, once again, to go out in faith. But there's a difference. Back there in Genesis chapter 12, God called him to go out in faith and promised him blessing. But this time, it doesn't look like what lies on the path ahead of him is blessing. It looks like pain. It looks like suffering. He has to offer the son of the promise as a burnt offering. It's almost as though God is saying, take all of my promises and burn them up because this is the son of the promise through him. Your descendants will be born and I want you to just take that all and just destroy it. 
a burnt offering is total immolation. Everything is consumed by the fire. And it is an offering which says this, I am totally dedicated to God. Everything I have, everything I am belongs to God. I hold nothing back. I am totally committed to him, to his worship, to his service. I belong to him. I withhold nothing. Is this God speaking to Abraham, asking him to offer up his son as a burnt offering? Yes, it is God. Abraham knows the voice of the Lord. But how can it be God? How can God say something like this? How can God tell him to do something like this? If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, you see there that the Lord warns against child sacrifice. He says he hates it. Deuteronomy 12, 31, that's page 157 if you have a pew Bible. He says, look, you're going to go into this land, and I don't want you to try and ask how these people worship their God so that you can do the same thing for me. Look at verse 31 there. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. God says, that's how heathens serve the idols. You will not do that for me. And yet here we are in Genesis chapter 22. We have to understand that what we have here in this chapter is not a general command for worship. This is a unique command in a unique situation in a unique moment in the history of redemption. God instructs the father of believers and he instructs all believers through him about the character of faith. God is teaching us a lesson that faith gives up everything. Faith holds nothing back from God if he asks it. Do we have the right to withhold anything? God has every right to demand that we give up everything, even our own life itself. Isaac is circumcised. Part of his body was cut away, and that's a picture that sin must be cut out of our lives. But Isaac is a sinner, and God has every right to demand not just a part, but the whole body. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. And God is a righteous judge, and he can call, he can, he can impose the sentence of death upon the sinner. And we can ask ourselves, well, is this right? But just by asking the question, we're wrong. Because there is no higher standard above God to which we can hold him. He is the standard. Whatever he ordains is good and just and right. And so we cannot say, God, there's something above you that you need to conform to. Then he would not be God, but that other thing would be God. And what we can do, what believers do throughout the ages, is we can appeal to his name. We can appeal for him to act according to his character. And so in chapter 22, God 
is acting in accordance with his character. Now look at Abraham's reaction, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. The narrative is very concise here. There's a focus on the actions. There's not a lot of talk about all the conversations that go on. And we may wonder, well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah when God was going to destroy it and see how Abraham, he pleaded for the lives of the righteous in those cities. Didn't he do that now? Maybe, but the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us. The focus is on prompt obedience. God tells him to do this. He gets up early and he goes. And yet the text reveals that all is not well with our father in the faith. He's distressed. He's confused. Look what he does. He's, he rises early in the morning. He settles his donkey. He takes his two young men and his son. And then, he's, then he cuts the wood. You would expect that you would do that first. But maybe the order of things reveals that Abraham is a little out of it here. He's, he's got a lot in his mind. He's thinking this through. And yet he obeys. And he went to the place of which God had told him. And then there on the third day, he saw it from afar. Three days of traveling Three days to think about what is going to happen. And again, the Holy Spirit doesn't record the compositions. It's all action, driving to that crisis moment in our text. What the Holy Spirit is teaching Abraham and us is that the way of obedience is the way of the cross. The way of obedience goes through pain and suffering and death. And Abraham, our father in the faith, walks that road to the land of Moriah. Now, Moriah is only mentioned one other time in the scriptures, and that is in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, this is what we read on page 360, if you've got your pew Bible handy. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Where Abraham is going to Mount Moriah is where today the Dome of the Rock is. And where historically the temple was. This is the place where in the future, Abraham's children will go up to bring their sacrifices, to dedicate themselves to God's worship with whole burnt offerings. But how will those descendants be born if the son of the promise is going to die? How does it even work? And yet, Abraham continues on the road of obedience. They get there. He leaves the young men. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, in French or in Portuguese or other languages in Hebrew, you can tell the number of the verb more easily, not so in English. Look at those verbs there in verse 5. 
they're all plural, I and the boy, we will go over there and we will worship and we will come again to you. What is Abraham planning to do? Is he planning not to listen? Well, Abraham believes the promise, and Abraham obeys the command. Even when they seem opposed. And Abraham can only come to one conclusion, that if God is good, and that if God is faithful, that if God keeps his word, then God will bring life even out of death. And the scripture tells us that's exactly what Abraham was thinking. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, this is what the scripture says, Hebrews 11, page 1008. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's faith. God will keep his promises, whether I understand it or not. Whether it seems possible to me or not. No matter how hard the road, the road of faith is the road of obedience. And now, all that action driving towards that sacrificial spot suddenly goes into very slow motion in verse 6. As Abraham took the wood and he placed it on his son Isaac. Now, enough wood to burn a human being, a sacrifice, would be a lot of wood. Isaac's not a little toddler anymore like he was back at the feast in the last chapter. You see there in verse 5, he's, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, but that's exactly the same word. I and the young man will go over there and worship. Same word. Isaac is most likely in his late teens, perhaps <clears throat> even in his early 20s. And he takes the wood on his shoulders, and now there's a conversation. Father, we've got the fire, and we've got the wood. Where is the lamb? And Abram's response, God himself will provide. God himself will provide. that The verb can mean to provide. It can mean to to see as well. The sense here is that God will see to it. We also connect the verb see and provide in that way. God will see to it. What does Abraham mean with that? What was he thinking? Well, we, we know from Hebrews that he's thinking that 
most likely God is going to raise my son from the dead. What was Isaac thinking? He's a young man. He can, he can run away. He can overpower his elderly father. What is he thinking? We don't know. The focus here isn't on those things, brothers and sisters. The focus in our chapter is on God's command and faith's obedience. And now in all of these verses until now, the, the name of God that the Holy Spirit uses is Elohim. God as he is in his exalted power as sovereign over the universe, the one who ordains all things according to his, to his perfect will. Don't we sometimes experience that ourselves? When we face terrifying pain or suffering or devastating changes to our life. And God sometimes seems so high and so far and so removed. Elohim, where is God in his name, Yahweh, in his covenant nearness? God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, how could God ask Abraham to do this? How could God ask a father to sacrifice his only begotten son, the son he loves? And in a way, this horrifies us. And yet, it is perfectly within God's right. And that's scary. Hold on to that horror, beloved. Hold on to it. See that beloved, that only begotten son, carry the wood upon which he will die up that mount close by Jerusalem where he will be sacrificed by his father. And if that brings us horror, if we have such a visceral reaction to Abraham and Isaac, then why is it that we think it normal, that we take it for granted that the sinless son of God 2,000 years later carried his cross up to the top of the hill and was sacrificed not because of his sin, but because of ours, was sacrificed in our place. And the Father poured out his holy and righteous and infinite wrath upon our sins and poured it out on his innocent and sinless Son instead of us. Why? Does this not fill us with wonder and horror? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And so there in verse 9, they reached the place of which God had told him. And now it gets even more slow motion as the Holy Spirit 
draws our attention to each action of Abraham. Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood in order. He bound Isaac. He laid Isaac on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife. It's everything's going super slow motion here. Took the knife to slaughter his son. That is a verb used in the scriptures to describe the slaughtering of a sacrificial animal. Abraham is going through with it. He's actually going to do it. He actually believes that God keeps his promises. And he actually believes that God must be obeyed even when I don't see how the way that he is making me walk can possibly lead to the outcome that he has promised. And now, in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called out from heaven. The angel of the Lord, Yahweh, God in his covenant name makes himself known here at this moment. And he speaks from heaven. And there's urgency here because there are other times that the the angel of the Lord comes down to earth and talks and walks and eats with Abraham and the believers. But there's no time for that. From heaven, he cries out twice, Abraham, Abraham, stop. This is a test and you have passed. You have experienced and you have demonstrated the essence of true faith. It is a total, absolute trust in the word of God. Not just talked about, not just professed with the lips, but lived out and acted upon. And James tells us about this in his letter. If we turn to James chapter 2, verse 20 to 23, where the scripture says this, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. What does the scripture say? Abraham's faith was expressed in his obedience, which proceeds from faith. And God honors that. And God says, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, it's the angel of the Lord speaking. And he says to Abraham, you have not withheld from me. Because the angel of the Lord is God. And here, as at other times, we have in our text, the pre-incarnate son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, before he took on human flesh, our mediator, the one who will come in the future as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's there speaking from heaven. And there in the thicket behind Abraham by God's provision, 
the Lord Jesus is saying to Abraham, here is a picture of my substitutionary atonement. Here is a picture of me taking the place of condemned sinners. You owe me your life, but I will give you my life in your place. That's what this animal represents. And so Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. And some of you might know the song, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. That's the name in Hebrew of this place. The Lord will provide Jehovah or Yahweh Jireh, Yireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. Now, Abraham doesn't know this as clearly as we know it. We read this chapter through the lens of the cross, through the lens of the New Testament. But Abraham, even though he's back there in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ, he sees the vague outline of the gospel promises of God in Christ. We have so much more knowledge than he ever did. And so verse 15, the angel of the Lord calls out a second time. You've chosen the way of the cross, Abraham. You've denied yourself. You've chosen the path of faith and the trusting obedience which proceeds from faith and you have held nothing back. You have given up all to follow me. Who is saying this to Abraham? The God who gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The God who in Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The God who calls you and me to a faith which gives up everything to follow him. The God who gave up everything, who gave up himself to save you. And so there in verse 16, we come to the climax of the Abraham narrative in Genesis, which goes from chapter 11 right through to chapter 25. Abraham, throughout this whole time that God has been working in his life, has been discipled and molded and prepared and grown into his role as father of believers. And now, now God says, I swear by myself because there is no one above him by whom he can swear. I swear by myself that you will be blessed with a great people that are descended from you. You will be blessed with the land of promise. And through you will come blessing to the entire world. And we know why. Because from him will be born the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does God seal these promises with a double oath? Because when he speaks, it's truth. That's already, that's already guaranteed. And then he doubly swears it by making an oath as well. Well, look at verse 16. He makes these promises because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And look at verse 18. After the promises, he says it again. Because you have obeyed my voice. So what is God saying? Is God saying that 
His goodness, His grace are dependent upon our works, upon our righteousness, upon our faithfulness and obedience. That's never what the Scripture says. There is no works righteousness here or anywhere else in the Scriptures. God was sovereign in Abraham's life. God took the initiative. God took Abraham out of idolatry. God gave him promises. God gave him the covenant. God gave him the gift of faith. God sealed the covenant in Abraham's body. God led Abraham on the way of faith. The point is not that obedience earns grace. But the point is this, that the gracious promises of God in Christ are embraced in the way of faith. And the way of faith is not just talking about the promises of God, but living by them, even if it means losing everything, even if it means giving up everything. And so Abraham returns to Beersheba. The way of faith, the way of the cross, is not always hard and painful at every moment. There are Happy times, there are moments of great joy. Think of that feast in the last chapter. Think of Abraham hosting God and the angels for a meal. Abraham goes back to his air conditioner tree, the tamarisk tree, the cooling tree there by the oasis, by the well that he has dug. And he's there enjoying the goodness and blessing of God on the edge of the promised land together with his wife and his son and his community. God provides. On the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. And we see that even in those last verses there in the chapter. Now, when we read lists of names, it's sometimes when we're reading as a family, there's a whole chapter of these names. Sometimes we just skip them or attempted to skip them because what are we going to get out of it? The Holy Spirit puts these lists in the Scriptures for a reason. There's something to be learned from this list here at the end of the chapter. God provides. While Abraham was walking the path of pain and suffering and sorrow, which passed through the valley of the shadow of death and which would lead to the death of his son, he thought God was providing. Back there in Haran, amongst Abram's clan, God has all this time been preparing a wife for Isaac, Rebekah, the granddaughter of Abram's brother. You know something interesting about Rebekah? Her name is derived from a word which has to do with binding, a rope used to bind animals. You might translate her name as captivating. That's whom God is preparing for Isaac. Instead of being bound to the altar and killed in God's providence, Isaac will be bound in holy love with his captivating wife. And through their love, the next generation of the holy line of the promised Messiah will be born. The Lord provides. Now, young people, this is for all of us, but especially those young people who are preparing to profess their faith in the near future. 
Here is the question to you. What are you willing to give up to follow the Lord? You know, there in verse 2, where the Holy Spirit says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. That's the very first time in the scripture that the verb, that the word love appears. And God, in this context, teaches us that we may love nothing and no one more than him. And so this is the question to you. What do you love? And who do you love that you can never give up? And sometimes it's exactly that thing, the most precious thing or person in our life, that the Lord in his providence takes from us. And many of us know how that hurts. God is teaching us. My child, you cannot find your satisfaction and put your hope in the things of this world or even in my good gifts or even in the means of grace. But you must find your satisfaction and put your hope and trust in me and in me alone. What does the Lord Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37? Matthew 10, 37, he says this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the only way to follow Jesus. Be ready to give up everything and everyone. If that's what it takes to walk on the road of faith. So count the cost. It cost him everything to call you from darkness to light, to take you from death to life. And it will cost you everything to follow him. And when he gives us the faith to give up, not some things, not most things, but everything. When he gives us the faith to give up everything, then we gain more than everything in Christ. What has the Lord taken from you in your journey of faith that has caused you and is causing you great distress and grief? No, child of God, that he loves you and that he is directing your eyes. Look not up to him and know that the path of pain and suffering, the path which passes through the valley of the shadow of death, 
is the path that leads to glory, to Christ. And so remember that blessing that was spoken over you when you profess your faith and that will be spoken over you when you profess your faith in the future. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.